Good morning, New Life Church. Um, so glad that uh, you could join us again this Lord's Day. Still enjoying the, the cooler weather, counting, counting the days until the, the heat hits us. But glad that we could all be here this morning. Last week we started a mini-series in Luke chapter 4 on the temptations of Jesus while he was in the wilderness. And today we are studying the second of those temptations. Remember the, the setting here. Jesus has recently been baptized to mark the beginning of his public ministry. And it was there in the Jordan River that God's voice came from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, 40 days have passed during which Satan has tried nearly every kind of temptation. And I think that these three temptations recorded for us here are the final three temptations and probably Satan's best attempt. And all three of these temptations of Jesus have been recorded by Matthew, Mark, as well as Luke in different orders. But the first temptation recorded for us here in Luke was based upon the fact that our Lord had fasted for 40 days and nights and, of course, He was hungry. Satan tried to persuade our Lord to use his divine power to convert the the stones into bread. And what Satan was doing was trying to convince Jesus that his father does not care for him enough to provide for his needs. So therefore, he must take care of himself. He was trying to get Jesus to distrust his heavenly father. And we know what happened last week. Christ triumphed over Satan Because he believed in God, and he believed in his word, and he trusted God's promises, and he put his life in the hands of of God, and of course was victorious. And today we look at the second temptation, and the temptation was to worship Satan and then be given the whole world. This is a temptation for Jesus to, to bypass the cross and to engage in idolatry. So if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 4, we're going to read from verse 1 to verse 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours." And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, 
he departed from him until an opportune time. Let's pray together before we study the word. Lord, we thank, we are grateful this morning that you have recorded these words for us, that you have recorded these temptations for us so that we can learn, that we can learn how to overcome Satan, that we can learn the tactics of Satan in how he tries to destroy our faith and how he tries to distract us from worshiping you so that we would end up worshiping him. I pray today, Father, that you give us the wisdom we need to see how subtle the devil is and how he tries to do this in all of our lives and how he subtly tries to take away our focus on you towards the things of the world, towards the things of the flesh. So I pray today, Lord, please give us wisdom. May the Spirit of God open our eyes that we may see the truth, that we may believe the truth, and that we may follow the truth. For your glory we ask and pray. Amen. I read a quote this week by Charles Swindle, a popular Christian author, and he describes temptation like a fisherman using bait to lure his fish. And he says, temptation ends with the response. Either we resist or we yield. We swim away or we swallow it whole. Anyone who has resisted knows the feeling of freedom that decision brings. On the other hand, anyone who has yielded knows the feeling of emptiness that follows and the pain of the hook in your cheek. And as I mentioned last week, apart from the epic battle between Jesus and Satan during the Passion Week leading up to his crucifixion, there is no other battle as epic as the temptation of Jesus right here in, in Luke chapter 4. Satan knew from the beginning of history that a man would come to destroy him. It was prophesied in Genesis chapter 3. And the genealogy of Luke at the end of Luke chapter 3 shows the link between Jesus Christ and Adam. And both were called the, the sons of God. And we know the story of Adam. Adam failed, but Jesus would not fail. And I believe that Satan had rightly concluded that Jesus had come to destroy him. We know that from Luke chapter 4. The, the demons knew this as well. In Luke chapter 4, verse 34, the, the demons cried out and they said, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. <coughs> as time went on, Satan learned that although he, he wished to rule over the earth, God promised that a Messiah would come and that he would rule in, in righteousness and that his reign would be forever. And Satan was determined. He was determined to spoil God's plan of salvation. And he tried everything he could to tempt Jesus to sin. If the devil could get Jesus to sin just once, then Jesus would no longer be the sinless Son of God. Jesus was well aware of the pain and the terrible consequences if he was to fall into the temptations of the devil. So my first point this morning is in verse 5 to 6, and we see the twisting of the scriptures here. 
we read in verse 5 and 6 of the, the second recorded temptation. Verse 5 says, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Matthew adds in his gospel, He led him up on a high mountain. It seems they went somewhere from which there was a, a vantage point, somewhere high where they could see a great kingdom. I don't think they could literally see all of the kingdoms of the world because no point in Jerusalem, anywhere in Israel, can you see all of the world's kingdoms. So maybe this was some kind of a, a vision in a, in a moment of time. But look at verse 6, and the devil says to him, while he's seeing all these kingdoms, he says, to you I will give all this authority and their glory. Now, before we look at what that temptation is, let's carefully examine the words of Satan here. And that's important for us to establish whether what he's saying is true or not. Let us consider what the Bible tells us about Satan's authority. Now, our Lord's words in the Gospel of John are the most informative. If you can turn it quickly or see on the screen behind you, in John chapter 12, verse 31 and verse 32, it says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Notice there, the ruler of this world, talking about the devil. In verse John 14, verse 30 and verse 31, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world. Notice that, same phrase talking about the devil, is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So in summary there, Satan is clearly referred to as the, the ruler of this world. Small letter R, okay, notice. And then in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul describes him as well in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the, uh, the minds of the unbelievers. Notice that phrase, the God of this world, small g. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's in verse 3 and 4. And then later on in Ephesians 6 verse 12, he says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So the Apostle Paul calls him the God of this world, small g. So what does it mean for Satan to be the God of this world or the, the ruler of this world? It's important for us to understand this because we can get to all types of wrong conclusions. Now, let me tell you what it does not mean, what Satan was saying. It does not mean all that Satan claims right here to our Lord in the second temptation. It doesn't, doesn't mean all this. The right to rule the earth was, was given to man. It wasn't given to Satan. We know in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, Adam and Eve were commissioned to, to rule God's creation. They were given dominion over this earth. According to the psalmist, we read, that man has the rule of all creation. It still belongs to him. In Psalm 22, verse 28, it says, For the kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. This is the rule of the earth belonging to God. Okay, And of course, Jesus, as an image bearer of God on this earth, 
falls into that category. In Psalm 103, verse 19, the Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom rules over all. In Isaiah 37, 16, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of this earth. So the ultimate rule of the earth belongs to God. Okay, so there's these two, there's these two things here that we've just seen from the Scriptures. We have the ruler of this, this world, and right here we see in the Scriptures that God rules the earth. So, so where's the connection here? Where's the, the line to help us understand? Well, we see Satan is the ruler of this world in the sense that he dominates fallen men through the power of sin and through death and through the world and the flesh and, of course, himself as he, as he intervenes in, in, in human matters. But he's not in control over kings. He's not in control of kingdoms. Although he certainly influences them, but our Lord is the one who is in sovereign control of all history. He is the one who is in control of all the nations. And of course, we know the prophecies of the Word of God are, are true. God cannot predict the future if He does not control the future, isn't it? So Satan's claim is, is only partially true. Notice this. He's been very subtle here, very deceptive. At best, Satan's authority is just a delegated authority. It's a temporary authority. Remember, Satan is a created being. He is not the creator. Although he desires to be worshipped, he is not worthy of worship. He is a created being. So look then at the rest of verse 6 there. Satan makes this serious overstatement. He says, For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. So this here is not a partial truth. This here is a blatant lie, okay? The devil has an inflated opinion of himself and of his power. And the Apostle Paul said on Mars Hill to, to all those philosophers, he said in Acts 17 verse 26, he said, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So according to the Scriptures, it is, it is God who sets the boundaries of the nation, isn't it? It is God in whom we live and, and move and, and have our being. And it is God who is the one who designs and turns the boundaries and the times and the seasons of all nations. So Satan doesn't have this authority. He can't give it away. He simply rules the system of evil. He does not determine the nations and who rules the nations. Remember the story of King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar was the, the king of the Babylonian Empire. And this was the most powerful empire at this time. And King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful ruler. This was around 500 BC. And Nebuchadnezzar thought that he was greater and higher and mightier than God. He thought he was the, the king of the whole universe. And when he elevated himself to that point, the Lord knocked him down 
And he became for seven years like a wild animal, the Bible says. His, his fingernails grew like birds' claws and his hair grew like feathers. And he was wandering around outside the, the castle walls, grazing, eating grass like, a, like cattle, like, like an animal. And this great king, Nebuchadnezzar, for seven years was eating grass like an animal. And at the end of the seven years, he comes to his senses. And it tells us in Daniel 4.17, the words that he spoke. In King Nebuchadnezzar, he says, The Most High God rules the kingdom of men, and He gives it to whom He will, and He sets it over the lowliest of men. Nebuchadnezzar realized that it is God who rules the kingdoms of this world, not, not him, as great as he thought he was, as great as he, as he exalted himself to be. And that's what Satan is doing here, isn't he? He's trying to convince himself and he's trying to convince Jesus a lie of a lie. He is not the ruler of the kingdoms of men. One quick application here before looking at the last point. We need to be on guard against lies. We need to be on guard against false teachers. And their techniques are not very different to the devil's techniques. In fact, they're very similar. Now, most often, they present something that is true, but they mix it with that which is false and unbiblical. There are so many examples I could have chosen today, but for the sake of time, I will show you one example. You may have heard of the preacher Creflo Dollar. He is a very popular prosperity gospel preacher. And the gospel he preaches, however, is a false gospel. He is a, a false teacher. In one of his Bible studies that you can even download on the internet, this is what he says. He says, As the, the righteousness of God, your inheritance of wealth and riches is included in the spiritual blessing or spiritual things. The Apostle Paul spoke of in Ephesians 1.5, based on Psalm 112 verse 3, Righteousness, wealth, and riches go hand in hand. You have every right to possess material wealth, clothes, jewelry, cars, houses, and money in abundance. It is that wealth that not only meets your needs, but also spreads the gospel message and meets the needs of others. That is wicked, folks. That is a lie from the devil. He's taken partial truths and he has twisted this. This is dangerous, serious error here. So many people fall for this, mixing truth with error. God never assures his people of material abundance. He never assures them of physical health. He promises to look after our needs. He never promises to satisfy our greeds, two different things. Christians are promised the riches of Christ. And the riches of Christ are not material things. They are the, the gift of eternal life, the assurance of, of glory in the eternal presence of the living God. Nowhere in the Scriptures are we promised the riches of this world. The prosperity gospel promises, in fact, far too little. And that's the problem with the prosperity gospel. Its main focus is on this temporary world. Its focus is not on eternity. And the true gospel of Jesus Christ 
offers salvation from sin for eternity, folks. It's not a platform for earthly prosperity. And so much more could be said about that. But I, but I hope you get my point here. Beware of false teachers. Satan baits his hook with, with truth so that you, you swallow the, the whole thing. Let me move on. My second point this morning is in verse 7. Terms and conditions. See there in verse 7, after twisting the Scriptures, Satan says to Jesus, If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Satan has been a very clever salesman here. He sets out his products, his merchandise, without mentioning the price tag. Now, he offers his terms and his conditions without explaining the consequences. Worship me, and I'll give you dominion over all the kingdoms of the earth. But what he fails to mention is that if he does this, he will be disobeying his Father. And the union between God the Father and the Son will be, will be broken. And Jesus' mission as Savior will be ruined. What he's tempting Jesus here with is to take a shortcut, is to avoid the suffering, it's to avoid the, the cross. And he says to Jesus, I can make life easier for you. You deserve it. You're the Son of God after all. You've just heard that from God. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. If you're supposed to have the kingdoms of the world, for your own. You're supposed to be the ruler. You're supposed to have everything. I can tell you right now, it's been given to me, and I will gladly give it to you. Certainly, you just go right to the crown. Go right to the glory. Forget about the cross. You've had enough suffering already. You don't need the next three years of agony. You don't need to go down to Jerusalem and, and have everybody hate you and, and try to plot your death. You certainly don't need to be scourged and, and whipped near to death. You don't need to be put on a cross, nailed up there, have thorns crammed into you. You don't need to do all those terrible things that, and, and have that horrible death. I'm willing to give it to you. I'm willing to give the whole thing to you because it's mine and I can give it to whomever I wish. However, there's one condition, he says in verse 7. Worship me. Worship me. I hope you see the problem here. I hope you see the problem here. Remember the reason why Satan was kicked out of heaven in the first place. He wanted to be worshipped, wasn't it? He wanted to be like the, the Most High God. And that's why he rebelled, and that's why he was cast out of heaven. And that's why a, a lake of fire was prepared for him and all those who were part of his rebellion. And he hasn't changed at all. He still wants to be worshipped. He still wants the honor and the glory. And he concocts religions of all over the face of the earth that, that ultimately are forms of, of worshipping him all these idols and all these, all these demons. And so you're worshiping a false god and a false religion, you're worshiping the devil. 
But that's not enough. Now he wants to be worshipped by the Son of God. In fact, that would be the ultimate for him, wouldn't it? And could you imagine if he could get the Son of God to start worshipping him instead of God? That would be almost like accomplishing his original rebellion where he, he sought to be as high as God. If he could get the second member of the Trinity to worship him, he's achieved what he wanted in the first place. But Jesus gives the right answer. Look at verse 8. He quotes out of Deuteronomy again, this time from chapter 6. The last quote was in chapter 8. Jesus answered and said to him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Please turn with me to Deuteronomy 6. We looked at this even in our parenting class this morning. So important to understand these words. So important to understand what Jesus was saying here. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13, he says, Well, the scriptures say, It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and He destroy you from off the face of the earth. This is what Jesus was referring to. The law. The law that the Israelites were to have obeyed. And this is so clear, isn't it? Jesus immediately and almost instantaneously, without a capacity to sin, responds by saying, God alone is, is worthy of, of worship. God alone is worthy of my loyalty. God alone is worthy of my allegiance. I will not worship you. I will worship God alone because that's what Scripture demands. And that's what I will do. It is God's will that He be worshipped and He alone. And that is what I will do. And this is obedience in perfection, folks. This is a perfect example for us. Remember the children of Israel, 40 years in the wilderness, and they're supposed to be worshiping the true God. In a similar situation, along comes Satan and tells them to worship an idol. And they carve a God in an image, and they worship an idol, and they fail the test. Here is Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness, and he's told to worship an idol. And he will not. He will worship God. He makes no deal with the devil. There is no shortcut to glory. And he will follow the plan, whatever the plan is. And however painful the plan might be, however deep the, the suffering he has to go through, and he knows about this, folks. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember he was praying, Lord, if this cup can be removed from me, please do it. Great sweats of blood drops. He knew the pain that was there. However deep the suffering, however far he needed to go, he was going to be faithful to God. He was going to follow that plan, even to the death, to the death on the cross. If that's where the Father plans for him to go, that's where he's going to go, because he wants to worship God. He wants to glorify God, and he wants to Glorify Him alone. 
He's not willing to make any compromise with the devil. It's a great application here. Now, of course, we can't make stones into bread. And we can't assume that we're going to be the, the rulers of this, this world or this country. But we can certainly be disloyal, isn't it? We can certainly be disobedient. Remember the definition of idolatry? We looked at this when we studied the Ten Commandments. The definition of idolatry is, is anything you love more or you give more time to or you depend upon more is in essence an idol, isn't it? Anything we depend upon more. Remember how this is connected to the first attempt of Satan to get Jesus to sin. Trust me, he says. Depend on me. I will provide. God is saying here, Jesus is saying here, my God will supply all my needs. He's telling us this morning, seek first the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom and he'll provide everything that we need. God has a plan. And it's a plan for good, folks. And it's a plan for glory. And it's a plan for a, for a crown of righteousness. But that path may be a path of suffering. It may be a path of trials. God has a plan. Don't make bargains with the devil to avoid the suffering, the necessary suffering. And Satan would have done anything to prevent Jesus from following this path, this path of suffering to the cross. And Satan tempts us to do exactly the same. Now you may say to me at this point, Pastor, are you telling me that I need to suffer? I don't like to hear those words. Is that really God's plan for me, to suffer? Well, let me take you to some, some scripture. Let me show you what the scripture has to say about that. Look at First Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4. Verse 12. The scriptures tell us, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Please underline that in your Bible. As you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Now these temptations are so relevant for us today. Now Satan would say to us, if you're a child of God... Why are you living like a pauper? If you're a child of the king, why aren't you living like a prince? The children of the king, they don't eat shawamas. You know, they eat steak. The children of the king, they don't drive second-hand clunkers. They drive new cars. The children of the, the king, they don't eat at the, at the pink shops. They, they eat at the Black Tap restaurant. The children of the king don't shop at Maxi's or at Carrefour for their clothing. They shop at Gucci's. Did I say that right? <laughs> anyway, you know what I mean. If you're a child of the king, claim your blessings. God has 
promised to send His angels to make you healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. Throw yourself into His blessings. The best testimony you can be to this status as an heir of the king is to be healthy and have the best of everything. I mean, that's a lie, isn't it? That's an absolute lie. The best way you can display the gospel, folks, is through suffering. Now, I don't know what your circumstances are like. I don't know everything that's going on in your home and in your heart. But when people look at you going through suffering, and you point them to Jesus during that time of suffering, not that you want to avoid the suffering, but you show people how you are depending on God and how you are trusting in God through that suffering, that is a display of His glory, folks. When you're in the deepest pain, when you're going through a terrible sickness, and you show people how good God is during that pain, that's a display of His grace. That's a display of the gospel. It's not dependent on how great car you have. That doesn't point anybody to the gospel. The true gospel of Jesus Christ offers salvation from sin. Not a platform for, for earthly prosperity so that we can avoid suffering. The Lord has determined that suffering is part of our path, folks. Follow the plan. Follow the plan, whatever the plan God has for us. However painful that plan might be. However deep the suffering and the sacrifice, we will serve the only God and the only one worthy of worship. Let me finish with an illustration I found this week. Very applicable. In the 1976 Olympics, in Montreal, a Japanese gymnast by the name of Shun Fujimoto was he competing in a, the team competition. And somehow during the, the floor exercise, he broke his right knee. And it was obvious to all observers that he would be forced to withdraw. <coughs> but on the following day, Fujimoto competed in his strongest event, which was the, the rings. And his routine was excellent. But at the critical point that was ahead, which was the dismount, of course, everybody was, was hesitating. Everybody was wondering what would happen. Without hesitation, Fujimoto ended with a, with a twisting triple somersault. And there was a moment of intense quiet as he landed with tremendous impact on his wounded knee. And then came thundering applause as he stood up. And as he stood his ground without moving. And later, reporters asked about that moment, and, and he replied, this is what he said, The pain shot through me like a knife. It brought tears to my eyes. But now I have a gold medal, and the pain is gone. I think this is similar to what the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8. He says in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Folks, we will go through painful times. But one day the pain will be gone and the glory will be lasting 
follow God's plan, whatever the plan God has for us, however painful the plan might be, however deep the suffering and the sacrifice, be committed to say, we will serve the only God and the only one worthy of worship. Our pain is temporary, folks. Eternity is forever. There is no doubt that even though we are children of God, we will go through some hard times. We will go through trials. It doesn't matter how much faith you have or how spiritual you are. That doesn't determine if you suffer or if you don't. We all will. This is true simply because we are living in a corrupt body. We have not received the fullness of what it means to be children of God. We have only the beginnings of our inheritance. Eternity awaits when we will have perfect bodies, where there will be no suffering. But while we're on this earth, we will face pain. The apostles did not enjoy their persecutions. They didn't enjoy their beatings. But they rejoiced because they remained faithful. And they were looking ahead to the promise that one day they would receive those blessings. Remember Job, he endured great suffering, but he too remained faithful and he saw the mercy of God. He found out that the suffering was necessary so that he could inherit a greater promise. The suffering may well have lasted for years, but the time was short compared to eternity, compared to the inheritance that he obtained in eternity. And the Christian can be certain of future glory despite our present suffering. Let us not make any deals with the devil. Christ alone is worthy of our worship. The testing of our faith builds strength, doesn't it? It makes us trust God more. It makes us love God more. It makes us depend on Him more. It makes us hope more for the glory that is to come. Not to hope in this present corrupt world, folks. Now, there's a book that's been written called Your Best Life Now. If this world, if this temporary world is your best life now, then that means when you die, you're going to hell, isn't it? Isn't it? This shouldn't be our best life, folks. We have eternity to look forward to. We have our inheritance to look forward to. We need to stay obedient, trust His love, commit ourselves to trust God's Word, and to trust His plan. If, you're a, if you today perhaps recognize you have been deceived by the devil, that you have believed a lie, and that you have been worshiping an idol, you need to respond in repentance. You need to, you need to turn to faith in Christ alone. He is the one who is worthy of our worship. Please come and speak to us. Please come and speak to me. Let me show you from the Bible how you can be saved and how you can worship the one, the only one, who is worthy of all of our worship. Pray with me. Father, we do want to thank you for the faithfulness of your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that he overcame Satan, not just here in the desert, but on the cross. He destroyed sin and death forever. And he hasn't just won a battle, he has has won the war. 
And He is victorious. And because of that, we are victors. Because of His shed blood, we can overcome death because of Jesus Christ. Because of what He has accomplished on the cross on our behalf. And today, Lord, we want to do thank You for this wonderful sacrifice. This amazing sacrifice that You made for us in our stead. We want to thank You for the gospel today. I pray, Lord, that we would be thinking of the gospel this week, that we would be thinking of what you have accomplished for us so that we can overcome the temptations of the devil, that we would remember your word, that we would be faithful to it, that we will worship the one and only God who deserves our worship. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.